people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not, we do not know what is become of him. Especially the words at the middle of that verse, they said unto Aaron, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. Now the chapter that we have read speaks for itself and needs no elaborate reintroduction. It is a most vivid description of the behavior of the people of God in the Old Testament during that important and most sacred time in which Moses was up the mountain receiving the tables of stone on which were engraved the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments, I might just mention, were given by God on three occasions. They were first of all delivered in a voice which they could hear. God in Exodus 19 and 20 came down himself upon the mountain with the flames of fire and darkness and smoke and in a voice that sounded like a trumpet God spoke these Ten Commandments that all Israel could hear what his revealed will is. However, what is said in our ears is quickly forgotten as every schoolboy will know. And God in his wisdom commanded Moses to go up the mountain to receive these same Ten Commandments um, written now with the finger of God upon two little plaques or tables as we call them of stone and that was what was happening when the events of this chapter occurred now you will have noticed in the reading that on his way down the mountain Moses was filled with righteous indignation at the behavior of his people and he broke these stones at the foot of the mount which required that later on at the command of God he must needs go up a second time with tables that they prepared themselves. And God a second time wrote these commandments upon the tables that this time they had cut themselves. So that it is true to say that on these three occasions and by different ways God gave his revealed will the Ten Commandments to his people and therefore of course to us all. So that what you have in Exodus 32 really is a vast open air service of worship and it is uh, one in which there were important elements that we ought not to miss. There was the visible representation of God and there was in front of it an altar built according to the prescriptions of men and there was a form of worship which can only be called the spirit of a carnival because whatever else they were doing it is very clear from the Holy Spirit's record here that the people sat down to eat and drink 
and when they were finished they rose up to play and the state of their dress and of their attire was somewhat unconventional for an act of worship as we see from one of the verses that we had occasion to read in this chapter. The problem also which gave rise to all these evils was a familiar problem which I think we're uh, used enough to in these days and that is Aaron their religious leader on this occasion suffered from a superfluity of softness he was a good man he was a converted man and later played an important part in the history of God's people as the high priest however he was a man who was uh, by no means of the stature of his brother Moses he was a soft man a pliable man and regrettably as we see he could not stand up to the demands of the people even the people who profess to be those who follow the true God and as a consequence we have all the turmoil and trouble that occurs in this chapter it all seemed to be so right it was an act of massive popular worship but the interesting thing is that at the very end God executes his just judgment upon it and he tells us what he thinks about it and his verdict is here written for our instruction and for our learning I would like therefore for you and me to consider these words that are given to us in the passage before us in which the Israelites say to Moses to Aaron up make us gods which will go before us for as for this man Moses up there we don't know what's happened to him get up make us gods that we can see we want a type of religion which we can thoroughly understand gods who will go before us that then is the picture and it is of course uh, a massive event I suppose the number of Israelites involved in this would be well over a million I don't have the exact figure but if you care to look at the book of Numbers the first few chapters indeed I think the very first chapter of Numbers you will see that we are given a list of uh, the num uh, an inventory or an enrollment of all the numbers of Israelites who were alive at this time and it was from memory uh, very many more than a million persons men and women and children so that the first observation we must make in the light of the chapter here as a whole is this that great numbers of worshippers gathered in any one place do not for a moment necessarily imply that that act of worship is pleasing to God it may be or it may not be but the numbers of themselves in no wise imply the blessing of God and in no way do they suggest that God must be in the midst that is the superficial obvious lesson which we must learn in the light of what God says to us here in this chapter and I want to make certain lessons from it first of all this I believe the first thing we should see from these words is that sinful man must have a God of some sort they say to Aaron up make us gods 
which shall go before us and you see they wanted a God of some sort feeble fallen man is so estranged from God that he does not know that God is wholly spiritual and wholly glorious in his essence in his persons in his attributes and in his works the God of the Bible calls himself the Holy One of Israel the God of the Bible is celebrated as the one who is glorious in holiness fearful in praises doing wonders that he is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity who fills heaven and earth from whom no secrets are hid and unto whom all our desires are known that is the true God but fallen sinful man is so different in his understanding of the true God that he cannot bear to be without a God of some kind and because he does not know the true God he must needs make to himself a God of his own and there are very good reasons for this you see these Israelites knew that life has its problems they knew very well that they were facing an uncertain future up they say make us gods who shall go before us they were afraid of the future they realized that life has its uncertainties and its mysterious windings and because they were afraid of what they did not understand and did not know was going to happen therefore they wanted some sort of God to act as a mascot for them and to be a sign of good luck rather like Israel when going to war against the Philistines superstitiously took with them the Ark of the Covenant in order that this might serve as some sort of religious badge or symbol of the presence of God in their midst and man is the same today men want a God who will give them some sort of good luck they want a mascot and a badge and a charm rather like a person I knew who used to work in the house next door to the old man's and dear woman that she was she once said to me I like working in this house next to the man's she said I feel so safe well that is a very charming thing to say but there was a great deal of religious superstition in that it's making God out to be a sort of charm or a sort of superstitious object and fallen man is always prone to turning the true God into that kind of visible representation there's a reason why man wants a God of some sort and I think we can see also a second reason in this chapter surely it is that man is aware that his sinful pleasures are wrong but he wants to have a smear of religion and a cloak of religion in order to cover up what is rotten in his life putting that another way we can say that man wants to have God in order to be able to say in the midst of his sinful pleasures that he has a cover up 
for his nasty rotten style of life. You see men very well know that they ought not to be doing many of the things they're doing and society today knows that and Scotland and England and Wales today know that and so they want a little smattering of religion just enough to be able to justify themselves in the courts of their own consciences and in order to sanctify their carnal pleasures and so you see when they're sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play they do all this not in the name of secular pleasure but they do it in the name of the Lord of hosts we want this visible representation of the true God we want some element in our lives which will give us if you like a cover-up for what is so deceitful and so fallen and so wrong I think we must say that these amongst others are the reasons why fallen man insists on making an image to himself now what is so wrong with all this well it is because of course it does not take into account what God himself has said to us in his word this might at superficial glance appear to be a glorious act of worship after all some people would say it's better that they should worship somehow than that they should not worship at all some people would say surely it's much better that these Israelites should have gathered together for an act of religious worship than that they should be let us say engaged in warfare or that they should be left simply to the lusts of the flesh pure and simple and uh, I have to point out to you here that neither of these excuses for this wanton willful carnival act of worship was a justification of it because the whole passage of scripture shows us here the mind of God about such things what was wrong with what they were doing it was that they were despising and ignoring the revealed will of God my friends God is jealous about nothing more than about his own worship God has a zeal to the purity and truth of his own worship greater than his zeal for anything else under the sun and God has prescribed to men how they should worship him and the Israelites had heard this and men today in this 20th century also have heard in large measure what the Lord our God is commanding us as the right and correct mode of his worship let's look at some of these commandments which they had heard with their own ears coming sounding as the trumpet from Mount Horeb and the first and greatest was these thou shalt have no other gods before me and the second was similar thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon their children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate me now that is the God's command in regard to his own worship and it boils down to this if we introduce anything into the worship of God which he has not prescribed by his own revealed will 
then we make ourselves abominable in the sight of God. And if we introduce anything into the service of God's worship, which he himself has not prescribed for us, then we are offering a great insult to the majesty of God. And it does not matter that people say, but it is worship, but it is worship on a grand scale, but it is worship in which thousands are engaged in the eyes of the Lord our God. What is not prescribed by himself in his worship is not worship at all. It is simply an offering of insults to the mind and to the will of the Holy One of Israel. And then there is the third of these commandments in which he tells us, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I don't know why it is that Aaron had made certain requirements for the Israelites in regard to their dress, as we read a moment ago in the reading. I can't tell you why he did that, but it indicates the extent to which they had failed to know that God requires circumspection in his worship, that God requires order and decency and reverential fear in his worship. Why? We're even told in this passage that men were dancing and singing carnal songs and worldly songs in the open sight of heaven. And they were calling this thing worship. Up make us gods, they said. And Aaron said, tomorrow there shall be a feast unto the Lord. My dear friends, we see the extent to which fallen man has failed to know and understand the spirituality of God. And if that is not enough, we ought to see how gross and how carnal and how fallen was the character of their worship. I do not know and I've never heard anyone explain why it became popular to make God into the representation of a calf why the Holy One of, God, of Israel should be represented by a calf, by a brute beast, by a beastly creature. It is most offensive to the mind of any spiritual person, but that is the way in which God was being worshipped. And my friends, the application of these things ought to be clear to us all. The more men are ignorant of inward spiritual converting grace, the more they will make much of the outward paraphernalia of external, external ritual in the worship of God. The more people are ignorant of the character of God and of Christ and are ignorant of his Bible and of saving faith, the more, I say, they will make of croziers and copes and crucifixes and crosses and altars and external things of every kind because man does not like a vacuum and the mind of man will always try to compensate for what it does not know. And if I do not know God for myself, then I will try to compensate by having the outward ritual and the glorious show and the man-made impressiveness and all the things which God has forbidden in his word and in his worship always come in and they always have come in and they've been coming in for centuries in the Christian church and today is no exception to this grand rule that sinful man left to himself will make his own God if he does not know the true God. It is the thing which God has revealed to us. It is a tragic thing. It is a terrible thing. It is an accursed thing. 
Up, says he, up make us gods which will go before us. Go before us in life with its problems. Go before us into death with the uncertainties of it. Go before us into the tomorrow which is unknown. Up, says he, make us gods which we can understand after our likeness and according to our own frail understandings. Now secondly from these words I should like to point out to you that there are some very ominous elements here in this worship of God. Some very suspicious and very ominous elements to be found here in this act of worship. First of all, here was a worship tailored according to the tastes of men. Make us our own gods, according to our own ideas, they say. Now you know that when Jesus Christ was amongst men in this world, in, six, in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, they were so impressed with his teaching that our Lord Jesus Christ was in danger of being turned into an earthly king. John chapter 6, the people were going to reverence him in such a way that they were under the feeling and impression that they would make him into an earthly king. And you remember what our Lord did? He immediately went away from those people and he went up the mountain alone to pray. That is most instructive because it tells you what he thinks about all forms of carnal adulation and fleshly unconverted types of worship. The people were going to bow down to Christ and to worship Christ, which was good, but they were doing it ignorantly. They were not worshipping him with a spiritual mind or with the understanding that he was the Lord of glory who had come to die upon the cross for them. So what we find our Lord doing in those circumstances was this. He began to preach to them and he preached to the people in John chapter 6 the most devastating doctrines that they could possibly have heard. All that was difficult for them to bear, he drove it hard home like six-inch nails into their consciences. Such things, I mean, as the sinfulness of man. No man can come to me except it were given him of my Father. Verily you come to me not because you seek the miracles, see the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled you come to me, says Christ, simply because of your belly. You do not understand about God, and you cannot come until my Father draws you. You must eat of my flesh, you must drink of my blood, but that is not a carnal thing, he says. Even that is spiritual. The flesh profiteth nothing. It is the Spirit who quickeneth. And it's no wonder at the end of that chapter 6 in John that the writer tells us the people followed him no more openly but they went back and Jesus had to say even to the two or three of his real disciples will you also go away and you recall how they said to him to whom shall we go thou hast the words of eternal life 
and we see from these things my beloved friends this that a religion which is tailored to popular taste is a religion which is unspiritual and offensive to the mind of God now that's one of the elements which is suspicious and which on the very face of it is ominous in the chapter we have here another one is this it is an ominous thing to my mind here that this act of worship was invented and devised by a spineless and timid minister who had not the courage to stand up to his own people now that again is a very topical subject there are such things as ministers who ought to be termed reverend pliable or doctor facing both ways or professor turn about and turn coat there are such ministers in the world today and their sin is this that they will do anything to please themselves and to please the people like the vicar of Bray the vicar of Bray used to boast I think in the 17th century because he said at one time he was an Anglican and then when there was a political change in England he became a Presbyterian and then things changed again when the king came back and he became an Anglican again and I think he became a Roman Catholic in the end and he said I've been consistent all throughout my ministry because my one principle was this I'm going to stay the vicar of Bray to my dying day and he did and that was the principle upon which he worked you see and there are many men like that they are vicars of Bray and the acts of God's worship do not matter to them purity of worship honesty before God saving faith the knowledge of how to get to heaven real gospel doctrine they don't care because they are pliable, blown about by every wind of doctrine. It's very ominous that that's the kind of act of worship we find here delineated for us in this passage. Let me mention a third ominous element here and it is this. It is that this act of worship was committed behind the back of a truly God-sent fiery preacher of righteousness it's very ominous and very significant that they did this thing that they did while Moses was up the mountain I'm telling you they would have made no golden calf had Moses been in the camp that hardly needs to be said let me add another application they may have done these things under the shadow of John Knox's statue but they would never have done the things they did had John Knox being there in his flesh and blood that man would have told them the truth of what they were doing they did it in a cowardly way it's all very well to do it when the man's back is turned or when he's been in his grave it's an ominous thing when men do that <coughs> under the shadow of a great man and when the great man's influence as it were is withdrawn for a time and you and I must see that it is a terrible and a shameful <coughs> and a shocking provocation of God that they have to do these terrible, timid and terrible things when a good man's back is turned and when his influence is withdrawn for a time. And another ominous element in this uh, act of worship I have to point out is it brought great disgrace to the whole nation. That is what we are told. That is what we are told in this passage. Aaron had made them naked 
in the presence of their enemies to their shame. It was an act of worship which brought national shame and disgrace upon them. And that is the way God describes it for us. All such acts of false worship are a national shame and bring with them possibilities of judgment too tragic for you and me to understand. Now thirdly, a time when God is silent is always a dangerous time. God had been silent, if you like, for 40 days. Now the number of 40 is a number which has symbolism in the Bible. That's not being fanciful. We mustn't read mysteries into every Bible number. But this number 40, which I think you'll find clearly somewhere up in this chapter, Moses was up the mountain 40 days, that number 40 definitely does have symbolism like this. It stands for a period of testing or a period of trial or a period of probation. For instance, you remember that Jesus Christ was tempted 40 days. Or again, the Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years. It is a divinely ordained period of, tem of testing or of trial or of probation. Now, on this occasion here, God himself was silent, if you like. The people were left on their own, without the strength of a great religious leader. Moses was receiving the commandments well out of sight, probably above the level of the clouds, let us imagine, talking face to face with God. Now, a time of silence on God's part is always a dangerous time for men. And you and I are living in a time when God is silent. I do not hesitate to say that. God is silent today in our churches. Today is not a day when we are seeing widespread blessing. Today is not a day when we are seeing masses of conversions. Today is not a day in any church that I know of in which the man in the street is running to hear the gospel or rushing to hear open air preaching. Now we must remember that this was not always the case. The 19th century was a day when there was tremendous blessing. Let me remind you that just along the river front here, in 1843, when the Spirit of God was being poured out upon Scotland so that the whole nation was refreshed and conversions were taking place everywhere, the highlands and islands were being en masse converted to God, almost the whole of them or large sections of them were being converted to Christ thousands upon thousands and in the lowlands too well here on the Air River Bank just a few yards from where we were sitting in 1843 when the preacher of the Free Church of Scotland was preaching on the river bank in the open air the people were sitting on planks of wood on a beautiful summer's day like this and they were so concerned to know how they could be saved that the preacher said it is as though they were saying to me with their tears in their eyes Sir, we would see Jesus. Now that was what happens when God is speaking to a people. When God is near, when God is working, when there is blessing, conversion, awakening, reformation within any community. 
But today, in the 20th century, God is silent, and there has been no revival in our country since about 1904 and 5. And even that was not a profound work of grace either in certain parts of our islands. So it was when this act of worship in Exodus 32 took place. It was a time when God was silent. Now I want to ask you a question. Why is it that God is sometimes silent as he is today and as he was in Exodus 32? Why does God, as it were, withdraw himself and do nothing and appear to be at a distance from the people? There is no doubt why he does it. He does it in order to test men's obedience to his revealed will in the Holy Scriptures. That was why God gave these people these 40 days. It was to see what they were made of. It was to prove what was in their hearts. Let us imagine now that every seat here was filled. Let us imagine that every week we saw conversions. Let us imagine that the building was so small we were thinking of moving out. God granted so. But let us supposing that were the case. There is no doubt about it that in such times many come into the church who are not God's real people at all. That they are carried upon the crest of a wave. The great proof of this was our old free church. Before 1900, there were thousands of members everywhere, but alas, so many of them, as we have reason to believe, were but hypocrites, unborn again and unconverted to Christ. Now a time of silence is a time when the true worshippers of God are distinguishable from the false worshippers of God, and when the converted are marked out from the unconverted because the converted will hold fast to the truth in a time of divine silence whereas the bulk of the people will turn away to false gods and worship of their own imagination my friends we must see it that way today there is a grand apostasy in our country today there is a massive turning away from gospel light and gospel truth from justification by faith alone as Paul and Peter taught it there is a tremendous going after worship which God never instituted in his word and turning aside to that which is pure idolatry and the offering up of high blasphemy to God the making of gods which are no gods the great test for your life and mine is are we being obedient to his revealed will in these difficult and dark and silent days finally and fourthly, we are taught from this episode as a whole that when God returns to his people and intervenes, it is always to set his own people right and to put them all in their proper position. If you like, the whole of Exodus 32 is like an enacted parable at the beginning of it you have the sin of the people and then at the end of it you have God coming down to tell us what he thinks about it all thank God for the Bible thank God we're not left to human traditions in understanding what's going on in our times and in our country and in our day I say again thank God 
for the inspiration of the Bible that we can look at all this and we can interpret current events in the light of it whenever God truly comes down into a nation into a community into a church it is always to put that right which was wrong before in the lives of men that's what all this judgment is about when Moses said who's on the Lord's side take your sword consecrate yourselves by slaying the brethren and your own sons who have been guilty of this apostate idolatrous worship judgment must begin at the house of God and when God truly comes in revival it is always <clears throat> to inspire repentance and true tears of sorrow in the lives of men <clears throat> I can prove that fact not only from history but from scripture in Ezekiel 36 <clears throat> God describes for us what it means when revival comes down and he says this I will pour pure water upon you from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you saith God then will you loathe yourselves in your own sight there it is when God comes down men do not congratulate themselves they go away shaking their heads and they go away to pray for mercy and for forgiveness and for a sense of renewed communion with God and the same is true in Zechariah chapter 12 I will pour upon the house of Israel the spirit of grace and supplications and then he immediately goes on to say what the effect of this revival will be <clears throat> they shall mourn for Christ as for an only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn you're an unconverted person here tonight in the sight of God you are worshipping some golden calf of your own making in your heart of hearts if you're without Christ tonight you have your own golden calf and you have said to yourself up let us make ourselves gods which will go before us and maybe your God tonight is the God of money or maybe it's the God of pleasure or maybe it's the God of drink and sensuality or maybe it's the God of gambling or maybe it's some other God which only you know about you have said in the sight of high heaven itself up make us gods my friend you read here the judgment of the true God upon your idol when Moses ground the calf to powder and made the people drink of the water as a sign of true repentance is it not time for you to plough up your fallow ground to sow to yourself in righteousness is it not time for you who are here tonight without Christ to understand that you may not be a worshipper of God in quite such a gross way as these idolaters of old were but if you do not know God in Christ you are an idolater as sure as you're alive and you worship a God of your own imagination as sure as you're sitting there what must you do is there any hope for you thank God there is 
you must turn to God from your idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body and raise us up in glory at the last day but it all begins when you change God put away from you the idols of your own mind whatever they have been take the Lord our God as your God and as your Savior it will be worth your while doing so because there is a day of judgment coming in which the wicked shall be burnt up as an oven and all who worship false gods shall be ground to powder under the heel of the Almighty but blessed is everyone who serves Jesus Christ and who worships him in spirit and in truth oh my friend I want you to be a worshipper of the true God and I want you every one of you here tonight to know that God and to worship that God for yourself and it all begins by the prayer of the publican God be merciful to me the sinner let us pray ever blessed and most gracious God we humbly confess to thee that we have worshipped thee ignorantly many a time and in our worship have had our minds on other things besides thee we have read thy word without concentration we have uttered prayers and we have not realized what we were saying when we prayed we have heard sermons and forgotten them as soon as we have heard them and in all these things we all confess that we have done evilly and have done foolishly and yet O oh merciful God the God of forgiveness be thou merciful to us all and do thou upon us sprinkle the blood of Jesus Christ this night and deliver us from the idols of the flesh and of the mind and from all corrupt and unscriptural modes of worship until we shall worship thee in spirit and in truth because the Father seeketh such to worship him hear our prayer for ourselves for all our churches for our nation for the whole world through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.